Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 19 now. We're going to cover verses 1 through 27, which will cover the story of Zacchaeus at Jericho and the parable of the pounds, as the King James has it, or the parable of the minas, as the ESV has it, or the Holman Christian Study Bible has it. Excuse me. We see Jesus now at the end of his Perean ministry. In the last part of Luke chapter 18, Jesus, Jesus had healed blind Bartimaeus near Jericho. And now he is going into Jericho, and this is going to be the last incident before he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So he's getting near the time when he's going to be crucified. We read Luke 19, verses 1 through 2. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. If you look at the map, by the way, Jericho was a little bit north and a little bit east, right on the edge of the Jordan River of Jerusalem. A little bit north, a little bit east of Jerusalem, right on the edge of the Jordan River. Now, there are no synoptic passages here, so we're going to take Luke 19, 1 through 27, straight out of Luke. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. This is a position that is referred to only here in the Bible, according to the NIV Study Bible. It was probably a person designated to be in charge of a district with other tax collectors under him, as the NIV Study Bible also says. Now, of course, tax collectors were in, hated intensely. They were hired by the Roman government. Their profit was whatever they could get that exceeded the Roman tax, and so there was no limit on that excess over the tax that was owed. And you know the Roman tax itself would probably not be insignificant. And so then they would get even more than that, and they would use unscrupulous means to extort money from the population. They were also working for a foreign, invading, oppressing colonial-type government. Uh, 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 not in colonial, I'm sorry, imperialistic-type government the colony being Israel, so these people were despised. And so Matthew was a chief tax collector. He was a tax collector that was chiefly despised, and he was rich. And wonder how he got rich. doesn't say that some of his gains were ill-gotten, but we can suspect that they probably were. Now, notice John the Baptist, when John the Baptist complained about tax collectors when he was preaching, he didn't say tax collecting was inherently sinful. Neither has Jesus anywhere has he said that. The goal not was to do away with the profession, but to get honesty within the profession. This is something we need to remember when we think about professions such as lawyers, such as actors and actresses. Nothing wrong with being a lawyer. Nothing wrong with being an actor. Mobile home salesmen, masseuses, lots of professions. Kind of got a bad aura about them. And, but we got to be careful we don't dump on the whole profession and... and Instead of trying to reform things within the profession, I remember the story one time I heard about a Christian that drove a beer truck. And he was going to a straight-laced independent Baptist church in the south down here. And his co-Christians in the church didn't like the fact that he was driving a beer truck. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that says it's wrong to drive a beer truck. And I always felt bad for this guy. I felt like he wasn't being treated right. But driving a beer truck is not nearly as bad as being a tax collector. So this is going to... to um, play a part in what happens here in just a minute. Now, the fact that Zacchaeus was rich is not surprising. The area around Jericho was prosperous at the time. In fact, one time Herod the Great, in years previous, was forced by Mark Antony to give the, the revenues from Jericho to Cleopatra because there was so much money, and Herod was doing everything he could to get it back. A lot of money up there around Jericho. Now, we're going to see that Zacchaeus was rich, but we're also going to see that he's going to get saved through the words of the Master himself, which shows that it might be difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it ain't impossible. 
Adam Clark points out that the fact that Zacchaeus was rich made it more unlikely for him to pay attention to an impoverished Messiah preaching a doctrine of universal mortification and self-denial. Yes, that's quite a remarkable thing. But was he Jewish or not? Zacchaeus, the name is Jewish, as Jameson Fawcett Brown say, but Adam Clark says it's not likely for a tax collector to be Jewish, and I think that's probably true. We don't know. doesn't really matter. Luke 19, 3-4. He, Zacchaeus, was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. Now, this tree is called in the NIV a sycamore fig tree. The NIV study Bible says it's a sturdy tree between 30 and 40 feet high, which is not a short tree. That's pretty tall. But it has a short trunk and spreading branches. So the trunk might be small. I guess the branches way up top went way up into the air. It was capable of holding a grown man. Why was the crowd so large there that forced Zacchaeus to go into the fig tree? The crowd was probably large because of the healing of blind Bartimaeus, which we covered in the last chapter and which happened there near Jericho. Now, Jameson Fawcett and Brown has an interesting idea concerning the motives of, uh, motives of Zacchaeus. Was he wanting to get saved? Was he wanting to enter the kingdom of Christ by standing by getting up on that tree? Or was he just curious? Jameson Fawcett and Brown says he was just curious, although I don't know how they know that. I don't know how they judge his motives. But at any rate, he was up there in the tree. Sounded like he really wanted to see Jesus to go all of that trouble. Luke 19, verses 5 through 6. When Jesus came to the place where the fig tree was, he looked up and said to him, looked up into the fig tree and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today I must stay at your house. So he, Zacchaeus, quickly came down and welcomed him, Jesus, joyfully. Now notice Jesus said, I must stay at your house. This implies a divine necessity, as the NIV Study Bible has says. In other words, I have got to follow God's will. I've got to stay at your house, Zacchaeus. He didn't ask, may I stay at your house? He says, I've got to stay at your house. He probably needed to do this because I don't think Zacchaeus, as a tax collector, ever would have asked the great Jewish Messiah to be with all those crowds following him. I don't believe Zacchaeus would have asked him to come into his house. So Zacchaeus was happy about the invitation, though. In verse 6, he says he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. He's happy. So apparently he wants to hear the message of Jesus, probably burdened down with his sins and guilt of being a IRS, excuse me, a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus know? Now, John Gill always says that Jesus knows things by supernatural power. I, how did he know Zacchaeus was up there? Probably because he walked by and saw him up in the fig tree. Nothing supernatural about it. That was a natural thing. I think Gill has got a quirk a theological quirk about interpreting even the most natural of things as being as, as springing from Jesus' divinity. We go to verse 7 and 8 of Luke 19. All who saw it began to complain. Saw what? Saw Jesus inviting Zacchaeus, inviting himself to stay in Zacchaeus' house. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Well, first of all here, when he says, if I've extorted anything, that sounds like, yeah, he did. <laughs> he, he probably had extorted. I can't prove it because it's a hypothetical. But still, he wouldn't have said it if he hadn't done it, I don't think. So he did. He had stolen money from people. The, the crowd called Zacchaeus, the tax collector, a sinful man. Now, you know, sometimes Jews call people sinful just because they weren't keeping the traditions of the elders, the pharisaical man-made laws. And in our eyes, those people would not be sinful. Jesus would be sinful on that definition. 
But here I think the definition is, in the strict sense of the word sinful, a true sinful man robbing people. He's a robber, basically. A judicial thief. A tax collector who extorted money from unjustly from the people. So yeah, he was a sinful man. Well, Zacchaeus heard that. He heard all the complaints. And then the first thing he says, look, I'll give all my possessions to the poor. I'll give back, pay back four times as much. And he must have meant it because Jesus took that as a confession of faith in him. And that's quite a confession to have all that money and to give it back and to pay back four times as much to people he stole from. This is roughly the extreme repayment required for theft under the Old Testament law, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Exodus 22.1 says this, When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. So if it was an ox you stole, you paid back fivefold. If it was a sheep you stole, you stole, you paid back fourfold. And Zacchaeus is offering to pay back four times as much. So that's roughly the, the uh, requirement of the Old Testament law. 2 Samuel 12, 6, because he had done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb that he stole. That was in a, in a story that Nathan told David, if I remember correctly. So this, this man, this Zacchaeus, was, an extremely, was extremely penitent for what he had done. Now notice this complaining. It doesn't say who was complaining here. It says all who saw it. But it sounds a lot like the Pharisees and the scribes who also complained when Jesus ate with sinners. In the case of Zacchaeus, he was going to sleep with sinners. Here he's eating in Luke chapter 15. The Pharisees complained because Jesus was eating with sinners. And that was Luke 14, I think. And then in Luke 15, in response to that complaint, those complaints, Jesus gave the three lost parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son. And in all three of those parables, the point was that all who saw lost things found and found them rejoiced. And they didn't complain about it. If the sheep was lost and found, praise the Lord. Quit complaining. If a coin was lost, the woman says, praise the Lord. She found the coin. If the son came back, the father says, praise the Lord. The prodigal son has come back. And so Jesus is trying to make the point here, or I shouldn't say, well, Jesus is not going to give a parable here. What he's going to say is the son of man has come to seek and save the lost, which fits in with this the three lost parables idea is that Hey, we should be glad when a sinner comes back. We ought to quit complaining. We ought to be glad when a sinner repents. Going back to the point whether the tax collector was sinful objectively or merely sinful because he wasn't following the Pharisees' traditions, John Gill says that, quote, this tax collector was an abandoned, profligate creature, one of the worst of sinners. <laughs> I think Gill is right. So this, it's always great when you see somebody that's really screwed up, really filthy evil come to Christ and repented when he comes. It's a wonderful sight. Luke 19, verses 9 through 10. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told them. In other words, Zacchaeus is saved. He's a saved guy now. now. Jesus hadn't died yet, but before the cross, you believe in Jesus. You believe in advance. You believe for what's going to happen in the future, and your sins are washed away. So Zacchaeus, this house meaning Zacchaeus' house, salvation has come there. Because he, Zacchaeus too, is a son of Abraham. In other words, he's a Jew. And it doesn't, he doesn't mean a physical Jew here, but a believing Jew. As in, what is it, Romans 4, Paul talks about Gentiles are sons of Abraham, even though they're not blood sons of Abraham, but they're sons of Abraham by faith. Well, so is Zacchaeus. Verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Not coming around to show how righteous he is and how many rules that people can keep. He's coming to save people from going to hell. That's what save means, by the way. It means save to deliver from destruction. 
If you save somebody, that means they, they're on the way to not being saved, which is they're on the way to being destroyed. And the Son of Man saved Zacchaeus. The Son of Man, by the way, is a messianic title. Jesus is about to fulfill his messianic function, and he always used that title of himself. I've got a lot of stuff that I could go through about where that term came from. But at the same time, I'm just going to say it came from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where Jesus uh, gets the phrase from, and in, in that passage, the Son of Man is coming up to the throne of God, to the Ancient of Days, to receive a kingdom which is eternal, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. It's going to last forever. So that's the, the connotations that go with that phrase, the Son of Man. Now, it's interesting to me that Zacchaeus here didn't actually confess Christ. What he did do was show his faith by repentance, and the confession in Christ seems to have not been necessary in Jesus' eyes. So I think we need to not get too hung up on, well, when did somebody get saved? Did they say the right, the right Bible verse or the right sinner's prayer, which I know a lot of people don't even believe in, but did they say the right way? No, if they, if they, if they repent and, and, and their repentance shows that they believe in Jesus, they're saved. Luke 19, verse 11, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. And I assume that's the disciples and all the other people who were following, all the crowds that were following. Now, why did he feel necessary to talk about a parable that we're going to see here, the parable of the ten minas of the ten pounds? Because all of the people thought that there was going to be a, a messianic, glorious kingdom that's going to appear right away in Luke 19:11, right away. In other words, now we're going to have all the glory with no pain. We're going to have the resurrection without the crucifixion. We're going to have all the glory without the shame. We're going to have us a good old time. We're going to sit at the right and the left hand of the Messiah. There's going to be peace. There's going to be prosperity. Rivers of milk and wine and oil and babbling brooks. <laughs> no. And no more Romans. Jesus decided he's going to have to tell them a parable to get this idea out of their heads. Now, this is not the first time he's had this problem. He's told them over and over and over again, look, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem to get crucified. You've got to understand that. But all they could do is keep seeing all those healings, and they just couldn't get it through their heads. No, this can't be. This man's not going to be crucified. They were wrong. The people were not only wrong, and wrong about the timing, they were also wrong about the nature of the kingdom. They thought it was going to be a glorious political and military kingdom, as the NIV Study Bible says. Jesus was going to be the king, but actually it's going to be a spiritual kingdom. All right, so now we go to the parable of the pounds, or the parable of the minas, as the Holman Christian Study Bible translates pounds. I guess pounds is British, and that's why the King James calls it the parable of the pounds. It's a Greek uh, currency measure called a mina. It doesn't have the same alliterative, alliterative. It doesn't sound as good when you say minas as compared to pounds. Parable of the pounds, it sounds good, but we're going to call it minas because that's the Greek. Therefore, starting in verse 12 and reading verse 13, Therefore he said, A nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king, and then return. He called ten of his slaves, gave them ten minas, and told them, Engage in business till I come back. All right, coming back, return, when? Well, that's always the $64,000 eschatological question. I'm an Orthodox preterist. I believe it means... It returns to destroy the Jews in AD 70. John Gill says that's an option, but it also could be the end of the world. And I think somebody else, some other commentator I've got, kind of splits the difference and says it can be both. Well, I'm going to take it as being referring to his return to, to 
destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 because he's trying to prepare his disciples for the persecution they're about to receive from the Jews who are propping up that unjust and ungodly kingdom until AD 70. So the nobleman who traveled to a far country, that would be Jesus, he was going to receive for himself authority to be king, and then he was going to return. Where is he going to get that authority from? He's going to get that authority, of course, from God the Father. That's not stated in the parable, but that's where he's going. Now, the slaves represent his ministers, his apostles. He called ten of them, gave them ten minas, a mina of peace, and said, engage in business till I come back. In other words, don't give up because I was crucified and resurrected and went to heaven, and now you don't see me anymore. I want you to keep working. Establish the kingdom. Now, what is a mina? A mina is about three months' wages. A mina is 100 drachmas, and a drachma is worth about one day's wages. So you're talking about 100 days' wages. Now, let's notice something here. The parable of the mina sounds very similar to the parable of the talents, which was given right about the same time, right at the tail end of probably part of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25. But there's a little bit of difference. In the parable of the talents, they all got a different amount of talents. What was it, one, five, and Ten, I think it was. I forgot. There was a different amount of talents. And the, the point of that parable was that you've all given different abilities, but work according to your ability. Here, the parable of the minas, they all got the same amount. Ten slaves got one mina apiece. That represents that they all had equal gifts, equal salvation. So you're just as happy. One person is just as saved as the other person, but you all ought to work at any rate. So the minas represents the gift of the gospel. This is according to Adam Clark. The parable of the talents refers to each person's abilities. Okay, it's a little bit of difference there. The parables are pretty close, and, the, and both of the parables have Jesus going off and staying away for a while before he comes back. And while he's gone, keep working. Engage in business till I come back. Now, some people have pointed out that it's rather an unusual procedure for a king to travel somewhere else to get authority to come back and rule his kingdom. But actually, the Herods did exactly that like Herod Antipas, those, the family of Herod, they went to Rome to be appointed rulers over the Jews. They had to get the authority from Rome. They went off to Rome, then they came back and ruled Jerusalem. The NIV Study Bible points that out. So that parable would ring a bell with these Jews who were used to their kings going running off to get authority. Now, I said his slaves represented his apostles. Some people say it refers to anybody who believes in Christ. Adam Clark says this, The same word is given to all that all may believe and be saved. Because each slave got one man. Well, that could be, but I think his more more direct references to, to his apostles, because he's trying to tell them, I want you to keep working. I want you to establish this kingdom that I've worked for so hard. I don't want you to blow it. Luke 19:14. But his subjects hated him. Oh, now we're talking about the Pharisees, because Jesus was their king, and he rejected. They rejected him as king. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to rule over us. And this is ironic because the NIV Study Bible points out the Jews had actually sent several delegations to Rome complaining of their governor. So Jesus has given them a parable that fits right in with the Jewish practice. And this, in the parable, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. That would be uh, what he's saying is, is the subjects went to God the Father and says, oh, Yahweh, we don't like this Messiah you sent to us. We don't want Jesus to rule over us, which is exactly what they did. So the subjects there are the unbelieving Jews, Luke 19, 15 through 19. At his return, that's Jesus' return, again, I think that's in 87, when he comes in judgment to wipe out Jerusalem, having received the authority to be king, he's king over all those defeated Pharisees for sure, they're gone. 
He summoned those slaves he had given the money to so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Well done, good slave, he told him, because you have been faithful in a very small manner. Have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. Now notice, Jesus does not criticize the five mina slave for only making five minas with his one mina. He gave him a smaller reward, but he didn't criticize him. And the guy that that made ten minas from his one mina investment, or his one mina in, 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 uh, investment, uh, he got a bigger reward. Now this brings up a very interesting point. Can we in heaven be happy when other people get bigger rewards than us? Folks, yes we can. Because obviously there's going to be some people up there that are going to have bigger rewards than yours truly and bigger than yours. How about Paul the Apostle? you think he's going to have some big rewards? Yeah. He suffered more, but we're not going to think it's unjust. I, I forgot where I read this. It was some Christian writing a book somewhere. It made, it, but it strong, rung a bell with me very, very good, very, very strongly. Is that you're not going to feel there's any injustice in heaven? How can that be? Because God is totally just. When you get your five minas, you're going to say, "Thank you, Lord. I appreciate these five minas." And you're going to look at the ten mina guy and say, "Boy, I'm glad he got ten minas. He deserved it. That was justice, and I love justice." So let's don't be jealous of each other, who people having more. It's just like on earth. Some people have more money than I do or less money than I do. That doesn't make me better or, or worse than somebody else. It's just that we're not equal in our natural gifts. Just likewise, we're not going to be equal in our spiritual rewards, but the rewards will be just. Some people work harder than others in this life. Some people are more gifted, and so they make more money than me. Well, okay, that's perfectly just. Now, some people, as I said earlier, th take those slaves not to be the apostles, but Christians in general. We don't know exactly who Jesus was addressing this parable to. If he was addressing it straight to his disciples, it would be a little easier to say that it referred only to the apostles. However, in Luke 19:11, which we just read, we can see that it's not clear. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Well, who's the they? Well, it doesn't really say. Sounds to me like it was all who complained about Jesus going to Zacchaeus, and so there you could say, well, he was giving the parable to everybody. But even so, I still think it refers to the apostles. And by the way, this is a parable. It doesn't mean we're going to have towns and we're going to be mayors. You know, oh, I'm a mayor of five towns. I'm a mayor of ten towns. No, 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 that's not what he was saying. Now, there's an inequality of rewards there in heaven, but as John Gill points out, there's no inequality of glory. We're all just as happy and glorified. And I make this point, there's no inequality of happiness. There's, not, there's a complete sense of justice, no sense of jealousy, as I've just said. We go down to Luke 19, verse 20 through 21. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. This is the one mina man. We've got the ten and the five mina man taken care of. Now here's the one mina man. Another of the slaves came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you, for you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. Now, this is, refers to the Pharisees who did not do anything for the kingdom of God. Some people might say that makes a problem in the parable because the first two slaves were believers, disciples of Jesus, and the third slave was not a disciple of Jesus but was an unbelieving Jew. I don't have a problem with that because that's obviously what Jesus is talking about. Now, this slave said that the master was a tough man. This is exactly the wrong description of Jesus. <laughs> so... The bad servant here represents the Pharisees, folks. He was saying bad things about Jesus. The good servants knew that they were serving Jesus. Bad servant, he says, Jesus is a tough man. Well, he was tough on the Pharisees, but they brought it on their own heads because they acted like idiots. And they were extremely sinful. So, yeah, he was tough on them. 
But he wasn't a tough man. He was a loving man, Jesus was. Verses 22 through 23 of Luke 19. He, Jesus, told him, the one mean a man, I will judge you, judge you by what you have said, you evil slave. Oh, Jesus doesn't judge? Oh, oh. No judgment like planet fitness, the no judgment place where we're not going to have a judgment while you come lift weights in our no judgment gym. Jesus said, I will judge you by what you have said, you evil slave. If you knew I was a tough man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. Instead, when Jesus returned, he wiped them out, as we'll see in a minute. Now, notice that Jesus did not acknowledge that he was a tough man. He was just saying, if, on your premises, why didn't you act on your premises and at least collect some interest? If you're not going to invest it in the kingdom, put it in a bank and make some interest, a little conservative loan there, and make a little bit of money. You, you didn't operate on what you believe. It's interesting that Jesus talked about you should have put the money in a bank and collected with interest. If It's interesting, the Old Testament completely forbade, well, I shouldn't say completely, the Old Testament forbade taking interest, but those loans that a person could not take interest loans were charity loans when you had to lend money to somebody because they had a natural disaster or sickness or, or a flood or a fire or something. Those were charity loans. Not supposed to take interest on those. But the Old Testament does not forbid interest on business loans. And Jesus very openly and very calmly talks about putting money in the bank and making interest. So it's interesting to me all through the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church says, No usury. I don't understand that, but if they'd have read this parable, it might have made them might have made them think a little bit. Maybe we're wrong to forbid people to lend money out at interest. It is unjust to forbid people to lend money out at interest. It drove the Jews into the money lending business, and then they got slandered all the time for being Shylocks and money lenders, and they were doing the perfectly just thing, and the Catholic Church was doing what was unjust. But that's neither here nor there. 19, verse 24 through 27. So he, Jesus, said to those standing there, to all the people who had just seen Zacchaeus come down from the tree, he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him. That's the one mina man, the unjust servant, the Pharisees. Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. In other words, the administration of the kingdom, Pharisees, is now going to be turned over to my disciples, and we're going to inaugurate the new covenant because you guys are toast. Burnt to the ground by the Romans in 8070, it's coming. So give it to the one who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. In other words, what they're saying is, he's already got ten minas. What does he need another one for? Jesus replies to that in verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. Now that's a good promise because that's us, ladies and gentlemen. If we're servants of Christ, if we get up every morning thinking, how am I going to please Jesus? How am I going to serve Christ? With what little you have, either in wisdom, spiritual knowledge, spiritual power, or uh, financial wherewithal, I don't care, anything, whatever you have, you're going to get more. From the one who does not have, and that would be the Pharisees, the spiritually obtuse deadheads, and the Sadducees, from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. And of course, their false religion, their fake religion that they did have is going to be taken away from them, because they didn't have any spiritual truth. And it was taken away, well, let's see how it will be taken away in verse 27, our last verse. Bring here, Jesus continues, or actually this is the master in the parable, or, the, or excuse me, the king in the parable, that's Jesus. But bring here these enemies of mine. Notice the Pharisees are the enemies of Jesus. Bring here these enemies of mine who do not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Little Jesus, meek and mild. He comes in judgment in 8070 
through the agency of the Romans and burns the place down to the ground. Josephus records the total disaster in the Jewish war. Was it over a million Jews killed? The rest of them hiding in rocks, exiled as slaves. Hey, Jesus warned them. They didn't listen. Now, I've been taking a preterist view of that. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, referring, this, re, this slaughter refers to the awful destruction of Jerusalem, but pointing to the final destruction of all that are found in open rebellion against Christ. And actually, even though I'm an Orthodox preterist, that doesn't bother me because, yeah, people are going to be destroyed at the end. God does a lot of things typologically, but we've got to distinguish the primary reference to the, to the type, uh, to, excuse me, the primary reference the type to the anti-type, to the fulfillment. He's talking about here what happened to him in the Mideast 70. And, of course, the enemies of Christ, the same things will happen at the end of the world. Jameson Foster Brown's right about that. That's an application, though. I don't believe that's what the parable was talking about. Adam Clark simply says, The enemies are the Jews whom I shall shortly slay by the sword of the Romans. So Clark says takes a pretty orthodox preterist view there. And we are finished with the parable of the Minas, the parable of the Pounds, the salvation of Zacchaeus, and we will in the next audio, last part of chapter 19, verse 28 through 48, we are going to talk about Jesus' entry. He's going to go to the Mount of Olives where his friends are, and then he's going to do the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we'll see you next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.